Take your Bible one last time this morning and turn back with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I don't know when we started this Bible study. It seems like forever ago. But uh, we finally made it to the place I've been trying to get to for the last several months. I've entitled this message simply The Gospel Message. The Gospel Message. I tell you what, the, the, the reality of God's gospel, and it is His, uh, is life-changing, is it not? Uh, it changes your attitude towards yourself by His Holy Spirit. It changes your attitude toward this God with whom we all have to deal with. And it certainly changes your attitude toward the way that God redeemed and saved his people through the person and work of his holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners' son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This wasn't a mere profession or a change of attitude, but it's a revelation of God by his Holy Spirit under the preaching of the gospel. Faith comes by hearing Hearing comes by the word of God. In order for any person, your family, my family, your friends, my friends, your enemies, my enemies, to be converted, what do they have to hear? They have to hear this gospel. Somebody has got to tell them about the righteousness of God. I thank my God through Christ Jesus, my Lord, my dear father in faith, Henry Mahan, is now with our blessed Lord. But I'm so grateful that in his good providence, uh, he sent a man. And it was a man. He sent a man into my life over 30 years ago, nearly 40 years ago, that was brave enough by God's spirit and faithful enough to tell me the truth about this God that I did not know and point me to a righteousness that I never knew existed, never would have dreamed of. And certainly never would have put all my hope in. But that's, that's the message that we have. You know, I, I look at it like this, folks. I have family alive and breathing just like you do. I have had family members and friends that have uh, considered me uh, not the, the best person to talk with about things religiously. And I understand that. But the good thing about it is, is this. If they are God's elect, if they were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. If they're his at some point in time, you know what I can know for certain? God's going to send somebody, maybe to be me, maybe to be Pam, maybe to be one of my boys, maybe to be one of you. God's going to send somebody to them to tell them the truth. Going to point them to a message by somebody on Sermon Audio or Facebook or some other mean, and they, somebody going to tell them about this righteousness. And you know what? His sheep hear his voice, and they come unto him, and he gives unto them eternal life. There is hope for every sinner until they take that last breath and they close their eyes in death. I, I, that, that's an amazing, that, that gives me great comfort, you know, and gives me great hope. You know, I, I, there, there's people that I love and I hope dearly that at some point the Lord will be merciful to them. I do. And it's not a matter of pride. I don't think I'm better than them because I tell you, you you know yourself how you feel about yourself and how you view yourself. Well, we've been talking about this for a while, and we left off last week with the fact that you and I are God's ambassadors. <laughs> That's an amazing thing. I think about the way he stated it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 
that God commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You think about God has shown us his glory, can't he? He's shown us how he can be just to justify ungodly sinners. And he's shown it to us in the only place salvation ever was and can be accomplished, in the person of his dear son. But then he tells us this, but we have this treasure, and it is indeed a treasure, it's a pearl of great price more valuable than anything that this world can afford. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power might not be of the vessel, but where does it come from? It's of God. And here's the thing. As God's ambassadors, His representatives in this world, you and I are called and we're sent forth by our God with a single, simple, dogmatic message concerning God's work of reconciliation. Listen to you. And all things are of God who hath, re who, listen, who hath reconciled us to himself. Can't get around words. Reconciliation isn't something that happens when we believe. We were reconciled by Christ, by God, to God the Father through Christ and he's given to you and me this ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead. Be ye reconciled to God. God has sent forth those he reconciled. Those who in time, by his Holy Spirit, under the preaching of the gospel, have been regenerated, converted by this ministry of reconciliation. Somebody told us that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Not giving a stab at reconciliation or filling some big blood bank with reconciliation and giving us vampire things to suck the reconciliation out of it. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses you listen to me as close as you can. How can we distinguish that somebody is truly an ambassador of Christ? How can we know? Or should we know? I'll tell you what, if somebody claims to be an ambassador for Christ and they're pointing centers to Moses or they're pointing centers to the law and they're sounding forth all the thunderings and enlightenings of God's wrath to sinners, they're not ambassadors of Christ. If they're encouraging sinners to produce good works in order to gain or attain or maintain salvation by their own performance, they're not ambassadors of Christ. If they're telling sinners that somehow, some way, they got to make their own peace with God by fasting or by prayers or by mourning, or by some great change in character or conduct, or even by faith or repentance. They are not ambassadors of Christ. See, the true ambassadors for Christ, you know what they do? They beseech sinners, they beg sinners, they plead with sinners to be reconciled to God in their minds based on that assurance that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. 
here's the key to it, not imputing trespasses unto them. Told you this last week, but it bears repeating. There is a group of people in this world, in time, that God has not charged sin to. Now think about that. That word that Paul used that was translated by the English phrase did beseech, it means to call to one side or to summons. And it's basically the same word that John used in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. He says, if any man sin, we have, here's the same word that's translated did beseech in our text. If any man sin, we have an advocate, a paraclete, a lawyer. So anybody who forsakes this message of reconciliation, or they alter the message, they're not sin of God, but they've gone out on their own in a business to which they're not commissioned. Because God's commission is clear that we in Christ's stead should beseech men to be reconciled unto God and that by the blood of Christ alone. So the question then is this, am I as clear as I can possibly be on that? Do you understand that there's only one way sinners can be brought to God? And it's through the reconciling work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So after Paul had made it clear what our mission and our ministry is, he closes this great chapter by telling his hearers, including you and me, what the fruits of reconciliation are and by what means we can partake of them. I hope somehow this morning that I can, with great simplicity of words, one more time, declare to you one true gospel, God's one true gospel. And I got two questions I want to ask this morning. And two questions that I want to answer from the Word of God. And the first one is this. By what means, by what means has reconciliation been accomplished for God's elect? What did it? Well, Paul teaches us. Look at our text. Now, we'll read verse 20 and 21 together, even though I've quoted it to you several times. We'll read them together because this, these are important. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you, we pray you in Christ did be ye reconciled to God. And then he gives us the message of reconciliation. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we may be made the righteousness of God in him. See, Paul didn't, didn't leave it up to his readers to draw the, their own conclusion concerning the ground, hope, or cause of reconciliation. He tells them just flat out. He says, for he, who's that? That's God the Father. Hath made him, who's that? That's the second person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son, Christ the Son. To be sin, here's a third group of people. You have God the Father who purposed it, Christ the Son who accomplished it, and he did it, to be, made him to be sin. For who? Not the world. For us. Who's that? That's God's elect in every generation who knew no sin. Not, not me and you. Who's that talking about? That's referring to Christ the Son. So what we see here in these words is a confirmation of that truth set forth by God's prophet Jonah long ago when he was in the whale's belly. What did he declare? He says, I will sacrifice unto thee with a voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that which I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord.
I'm grateful for this, the true and living God, the God of the Scriptures. He chose sinners in Christ, their head, before the foundation of the world. In essence, you think this, before there was ever a sinner, you know what there was? There was a surety and there was a Savior. Uh-huh. I think that's one of the things that people have so much confusion in their mind. Go study a surety. I know I've preached. There's several messages where we've preached about a surety. A surety means what? They take on every, all the responsibility for the person for whom they're the surety. And I don't think people understand. When was Christ made our surety? He's the surety, Paul said over in Hebrews. He's a surety. Christ was made the surety of a better covenant. Made on better comp promises. Based on a better hope. You think about this. God the Father gave those He chose to the Son. And He committed their salvation to the work He sent that Son to do. So in answer to this first question, by what means was reconciliation been accomplished for all God's elect? It simply is. God the Father made Christ the Son to be sin for us. And I know there's been a lot of confusion started back in 2006, and we're not going to get trapped out in the weeds on that. We just need to try to keep it as simple and as clear as we can. I, I'm not going to try to deal with the error. You know what the error is out there. What, what does this thing of imputation mean? This is so important. Henry, in his commentary, he amazed me how simply he could put things. He, he said this, somebody said, the gospel can be summed up in two words, substitution and satisfaction. Christ is our substitute, made full and complete satisfaction for us, before God's holy law and justice. In Him, in Christ, we are wholly sanctified, completely justified, and eternally saved. Where? In Him. That's why he said back in verse 17, any man be in Christ, new creature. To state it as simply as I can state it, by the first part of this verse, Paul dogmatically states that God the Father made Christ the Son, God the Son, our surety and our substitute, legally accountable. That's so important. Legally accountable for the sins of His people. Christ became our scapegoat. He became our sin bearer. Think about it this way. All the guilt all the penalty, all the condemnation that God's law and justice demanded from God's people, the Lord Jesus Christ took full, absolute responsibility for it. It all became His. Christ wasn't made sin for all the people that ever has been born into this world. He was made sin for a specific people. He made Christ, for God hath made, He hath made Him to be sin for us. A particular group. The same group that he talked about in verse 19, to wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed to 
us, those that he has not imputed sin to, committed to us the word of reconciliation. But here's the question of ages. How can God legally not impute our trespasses to us? How can he do that and still be just? Now, he told us in Isaiah that he is a just God and a Savior. He told Moses that in his name, part of his name is this, he will by no means clear the guilty. And yet he's not imputed our sins to us, but where's he imputed our sins? To his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So how can he do that? He couldn't just ignore our sins. And God's not pretending that our sins aren't actually there. We are really sinners by birth, by nature, by practice, and even still by choice. See, there's, there's only one way <clears throat> he could justly not charge or reckon our sins to us because our sins became Christ legally one way. How? By imputation alone. We see that typified in the Old Testament, don't we? You think about all these pictures. The animal that God killed to clothe Adam and Eve in the garden. The lamb brought by Abel. The ram, remember Abraham? The ram caught in the thicket by its horns that he offered in the place or stead of his son Isaac. The Passover lamb. All the sacrifices of the Old Testament. Every one of them, what did they typify? This great act of imputation. That's why we read Isaiah 53 in the call to worship. I'm not going to go back over it. I don't have enough time. <laughs> go back and read that. He, he, surely he hath borne our sin and carried our sorrow. Right? By his, all our sins were laid upon him and by, laid, not, not put in him, laid on him. And by his stripes... We're healed. You think about it. All these types and shadows pointed to the work Christ would do as his, the substitute and surety to his people by his obedience unto death. Paul told those at Rome, for if when we were enemies, listen to the language, for when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. How? By the death of his son. You see that? When did that occur? It occurred at Calvary. But our God looks on things that are not, how? As though they were. We are reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. As a mere man, I can't adequately express the unbelievable and joyful content of this transaction between the persons of the Godhead but I know it to be so. I love the way Robert Hawker put it in his commentary. He said that Christ, who knew no sin, should be made sin for his people, that he who is holiness himself and is of pure eyes and to behold iniquity should be counted unholy and have all the iniquity of his people laid upon him. Yea, he that is one with the Father over all, God bless forever, should be made a curse for them. What a world of mysteries is contained in this subject. 
Thank God eternity is eternity because it's going to take us that long to fathom all of it. What he's done for us in the person, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the, the imputation of God, the elect sin to Christ, folks, it was a real transaction. How's it expressed in the scriptures? God himself expressed it. I, even I am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for my own sake and will not remember thy sins. When Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree, being made legally and judicially responsible for, responsible for them, he truly felt in his sin, sinless humanity, both body and soul, the condemnation and wrath of the sins of those he represented, which they rightfully deserve. Listen to our Lord's voice on the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But the thing of it is, in all of it, even when he made that cry, you know what he still was? He was that holy thing. Praise God, the Father's words still rang true, even when Christ was made sin. Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, and whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will show judgment, righteousness to the Gentiles. And if you remember what we've seen all along, it pleased the Lord. We read that in Isaiah. It pleased the Lord. It satisfied the Lord to bruise him. But here's a second question, real quick. What's in the fruit and the effect of this reconciliation, this accomplished work through the Lord Jesus Christ being made sin? Here it is, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Think about what Paul's words means to the chief of sinners, including you and me. Because Christ, who knew no sin, was made sin, the fruit and the effect of his work is that all those who are his people, who in themselves are sinners, all sin and know no righteousness, they are made the very righteousness of God in him. Somebody's horns go and I know people have said, y'all believe in a post-it note righteousness. This is not a post-it note righteousness. What we've been made is a true righteousness. It's made the very righteousness of God. David stated it this way concerning our Lord Jesus Christ when he was made sin. He said, blessed is he whose transgression forgiven, whose sins covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there's no God. And then Paul, by the same Holy Spirit, when he restated what our David had written in Psalm 32, he changed it after Christ came in the fullness of time, and he stated the same thing this way, but to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also describes the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputes righteousness. How? Without works. How'd David say that? Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. All those reconciled to God by the death of Christ, 
are really and truly considered and made righteous before God by Christ's righteousness. And see, this glorious work is done in exactly the same way that Christ stood before God in God's view as a sinner's surety and was beheld and was made sin for them. How was he made sin? By imputation alone. And it's the same way with us. You think about it this way. This divine transaction, it's the sole cause of God's elect's justification before God. What Christ did. And this work of God, it didn't merely place his people in a favorable position so that they could work out a righteousness by their obedience. The Lord Jesus Christ alone, he's his people's righteousness. What amazing grace that we, those sinners in and of ourselves, are made not merely the righteousness or the holiness of a man. We don't, we don't just have the righteousness that Adam had in the garden because that one could be lost. We've been made the very righteousness of God in him. That's exactly what Paul meant when he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 and 31. But of him are you in Christ Jesus, who of God is made and does what? Wisdom. All we need to know about God. Righteousness, our standing both inwardly and outwardly before God. Sanctification and redemption, the deliverance of our body, that according as it's written, he that glory, let him glory in the Lord. Isaiah summed it up like this when he talked about the state of God's children in Christ. Surely shall one say, in the Lord have I righteousness and strength, even to him shall men come, and all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed. In the Lord shall all the seed of Israel be justified. Where? In Messiah, in the Lord Jesus Christ. I tell you, any other message of reconciliation, satisfaction, this. That is to say that God has made Christ to be sin for his people, and he's made his people the very righteousness of God in him. You know what it is? It's another gospel. It is. And if our Savior, your Savior, didn't truly bear your sins in his body on the tree and made you the very righteousness of God in him, at present you're still dead in trespasses and sin, and you're still an enemy in your mind by wicked works. My thought, my prayer, and my hope is that by God's grace, he'll cause us to see ourselves being brought by faith to a greater awareness of our unchangeable state of justification based on Christ's righteousness alone before the true and living God. I love what John Bunyan wrote in his little book, Justification by an Imputed Righteousness. He said this, and indeed, this is one of the greatest mysteries in the world. Namely, that a righteousness that still resides with one in heaven can justify me, a sinner on this earth. May the Lord give us eyes to see, ears to hear, heart, mind, and will to comprehend this great transaction of God's double imputation, our imputation of our sins to him and the imputation of his righteousness to us. Let's stand together and we dismiss. Lord bless you and keep you until we see you next Lord's Day. Kenny, if you would dismiss us, please. Father.